subject we're in involves a subject that is probably as relevant as any subject we could talk about, and that's temptation. And the reason it's so relevant is you're going to experience it on a regular basis. And if you don't understand it, both its source and the pathway that it takes, defeating it is impossible. Did you hear that? If you don't understand its source, if you don't understand how it works, you will not succeed in overcoming it. And consequentially, the impact of failing in temptation, and temptation is not a sin, I'll reinforce that. Who was tempted yet without sin? Jesus was. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 4 because I want you to see that the sinless one had desires that could have led him into sin in his humanity which is critical to your understanding. But the consequences to temptation are catastrophic. Sin is incredibly destructive. Sometimes you sin in a way that brings a level of destruction to your life that undeniably communicates this is super painful. This was a decision that was catastrophic. And sometimes in life, you will endure a consequence that is so serious and so significant, you can't live under the delusion that I can be tempted, make disobedient choices, and get away with it. Temptation is an enticement. This is a good definition. Temptation is an enticement to satisfy legitimate longings in an illegitimate way. Temptation is an enticement, an invitation to satisfy, listen to me, legitimate longings in illegitimate ways. Because the longings that fuel temptation, my hunger for the Krispy Kremes that you had today, were they good? Okay, that hunger is not sinful. The attraction may not be the right solution. I'm not going to argue Krispy Kremes are sin. It may or may not be, depending on the day or how many you eat. The point I'm trying to make is temptation is an enticement to satisfy, listen to me, legitimate longings. A hunger that is natural to your humanity in illegitimate ways. What do I mean by illegitimate? Ways that are not in concord or consistent with the prescriptions and pathway that is defined and prescribed by God. Longings for intimacy, that's natural. But seeking out solutions to those longings in unbiblical ways is both sinful and massively destructive. This subject of temptation and how to triumph over it is critical because sin is destructive, whether it's massive and obvious or subtle and not so obvious. Knowing how it works, knowing where it comes from, which is where we've been in James. Sin doesn't come from God, 
Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desire and enticed. Desire, epithumia, strong passions, natural hungers. The enticement is the hook. It's a lure. It's an illegitimate satisfaction source. Everyone is tempted, no exceptions, no exclusions. When they are drawn away, that's drawn as in moved by hunger to seek satisfaction for that hunger. I'm going to meet the need. I'm hungry. I'm looking for satisfaction. I said it to you last week. Hungry people eat. You don't stay hungry. Temptation capitalizes on that hunger, and everyone is drawn away and enticed from his own depravity as the source, the key source, the enemy that amplifies lies and opportunity to satisfy that desire in an illegitimate way, which dishonors God and damages you. This is about the glory of God, and it's about your health. Sin is unhealthy. Sin is destructive, and sin, which is disobedience, choosing the solution that God doesn't prescribe, living by self-dependence, not God-dependence, is God-dishonoring. So two big things happen when I fall into sin and I take the Lord. I make the decision to disobey. My will unites with that opportunity. My hunger, will, and opportunity conceive. And that produces sin. Temptation's not sin. The decision to choose a solution with a hook is the sin. And that sin brings forth what, according to James? Say it. Death. Death. Not I'm sick. It brings forth death. That's why this subject is so important. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 4. And uh, I think I said this to you. I've, I've taught this a time or two, but never this many sessions. So kind of maybe as a satisfaction to myself, I'm going to give you more than I can normally give. We're going to dig a little deeper. We're going to look at passages, which we did last week when we looked at Esau, who was so desperately hungry coming in from the field, he was tempted and he traded a lot for a little. Catastrophic decision. I see a solution. I devalue what that solution will cost me, and I make a choice. Godless Esau, immoral Esau, traded everything, his birthright in terms of blessing from his father, which is a type of our blessing with our father for a single meal. That's temptation at its illustrative core. We're going to look at another temptation, and I may end up teaching this passage, but I want to highlight something. So what is the first ingredient to the steps of immorality? Because circling back to where we were, we're looking at how it happens. How do you overcome temptation? You understand how it happens. John Owen says observation. You understand the methods, the wiles, and the means that the enemy has employed to defeat you in the past. Look at it. What happened? I was talking to Jim. I'm going to use you here. I 
forewarned him last week, so I hope he came ready for me today. Jim is the head soccer coach at the Masters University. Let's pretend, I know this never happens, but let's pretend that Westmont has beaten us three times in a row. Has that ever happened? No. Okay. How many times in a row have they beaten us? A couple times in a row? You're reluctant to admit any of this, right? So stand up for me. And we're glad you came to Sunday School Fellowship Group today. And Jolene, you went to Westmont. So this is especially important. So Jim, head soccer coach at the Masters University, having been defeated a couple of times by Westmont, what does a head coach do in preparation for the next game competition with Westmont? He studies a lot of film. Why is that? To give strategy to not letting it happen again. So when you look at film, what are you looking for? So, okay, so you're looking for weaknesses, your weaknesses. What you did the last time to expose you to the success or the the approach, the strategy of the enemy, Westmont. And you're also looking for ways to defeat them when they employ their tactics. Did I get that right? And, And you watch a lot of film. And if you don't watch film, what is the probability for success? So you would recommend film watching. What coach do you know that wants to succeed doesn't watch film? Nobody, no successful coach fails to examine previous encounters so that they're better prepared to succeed the next time they engage. Is that right? Thank you. Listen to me. Masters won't succeed against Westmont without examining the game film, and you won't either when it comes to defeating your arch rival and your enemy. Depravity, the enemy, the world in which you live is designed to harm you in the ways that matter the most. So what is the first step you're going to see on the game film of failure? The one you're inclined to overlook I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I've got strong desires that are not being satisfied. I'm hungry. They're not sinful desires. They're natural desires. Step number one is recognizing that your pathway to potential failure begins by by failing to recognize that in my hunger... An appetite for what I don't have that I'm designed to have puts me in a place of vulnerability. Look at Matthew chapter 4, the archetype temptation. 
This is kind of the prototype of how it works. This is the second Adam. You saw the first Adam fail in Genesis chapter 3. The second Adam who did not fail, Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus validating the character necessary to fulfill his ministry and mission. All great tools of grace, agents of influence, male and female, that God uses are validated in their character before they're missionally launched or commissioned. This is Jesus's foundation of character necessary for the journey he would take. Tested at the beginning and tested at the end. Tempted at the beginning, a face-to-face or a personal encounter with the enemy. And we rarely are going to experience the enemy. It'll typically be a, an ally of the enemy. Jesus was with the prince of darkness himself. Chapter 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. One of the other Gospels uses a perfect tense verb which says he was hungry and he became hungry. So that it wasn't like, hey, at the end of 40 days, I went those 40 days, didn't miss food at all. This implies that somehow he didn't hunger those 40 days. But a parallel passage would, by the nature of the verb, imply and require that he was hungry all 40 days. And at the end of that 40 days, he became became particularly passionate for satisfaction in a natural way for food. He's what? Hungry. Did you hear that? Hungry. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Fix your problem your way. Jesus, verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, which is to say the sole source for satisfaction begins in recognizing that it comes from the words of God, not self-solutions. Self-satisfaction rocks to bread. Satisfy your hunger in an illegitimate way. This is using real solutions that you have at your disposal. Could Jesus have made the rocks into bread? Yes or no? Yes. But the purpose of God in this season was not to fix the problem that way. Real human solutions where we employ self-satisfying actions to meet legitimate longing. Instead of relying, listen to this, first and foremost on God provisions. Did you hear that? Using self-solutions available to me in contradiction to the God provisions that are first and foremost for me. What did Jesus say? My life starts with God and his words. 
Satisfaction from God's word is a foundational solution for dealing with temptations to satisfy yourself in ways other than God's word. I was reading this week in Jeremiah 15. Listen to verse 16 when Jeremiah said, your words, referring to God's, were found and I ate them. This is figurative speech. I took them in. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. Which is kindred to David's statement in Psalm 63. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness. That's a Hebrew idiom for the richest of food. When I meditated on thee. Your self-revelation through your word and my reflections on you through your word, my soul was satisfied as with the richest of food when I meditated on thee, O God, in the night watches. Now go back to Proverbs chapter 7 where we have been. So I'm talking temptation. wanted to begin with hunger and hook. The lure has a hook. The lure is self-satisfy, self-gratify. The hook is doing it in a way that is not in concord legitimately with the will and way of God. The solution to dealing with temptation is soul satisfaction, and that begins with the words of God that you feed on. They become satisfying to the point where legitimate longings are dealt with first and foremost by the satisfactions that God provides through his word. The Bible is soul food. If you neglect it, you're hungry in a way that nothing will satisfy. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Bible is central for solving a soulish satisfaction hunger that promotes and propels you to seeking satisfaction out of famished, desperate need. I'll fix this. If you eat, you can say no, because the secret to overcoming temptation is saying yes to the words of God before you have to say no to the desires and the temptations of the flesh. Did you hear that? It's saying yes before you have to say no. Because the Bible not only warns you, it not only sanctifies you, it satisfies you. You eat it. Proverbs chapter 7. Here's the morality play and the illustration. My son, keep my words. These first five verses talk about the prevention of moral compromise and failing in temptation. My son, keep my words. Treasure, that's keep as in store it. Treasure my commandments within you. That amplifies the meaning of keep. So it's memorization. Keep my commandments and live. That's applying the words you know, not just knowing them, but living them. And then this statement, my teaching is the apple of your eye. You not only memorize it, you prioritize it as precious, like you would the pupil of your eye. Your life revolves around that priority. Verse 3, bind them, these words, on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. This is review them, rehearse them, remember them. 
because you're inclined to forget them. If they're not in front of you, you can lose track of them. Verse 4, say to wisdom, which comes from the words of God, you are my sister, call understanding, your intimate friend. That's intimacy. That's relationship. Verse 5, that they, the words that you have a relationship with, the words that you're rehearsing, the words that are priority that you're prioritizing, the words that you're memorizing, verse 5, that they may keep you from an adulteress, that's protection, that word keep is like uh, secret service, some uh, a detail that is protecting you, that they may keep you from an adulteress, that's the immoral woman, from the foreigner, that's the woman who's immoral by culture, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. Why do good people do bad things? Because they neglect the word of God. The active ingredient in Preventing is prioritizing, and the active ingredient to failing is neglecting. I don't memorize it. I don't prioritize it. I don't build intimacy and relationship with it. I don't rehearse it. Therefore, I'm not satisfied by it. I'm not warned by it, and I'm not bathed by the Bible. Neglecting the Bible. Here's the question you need to ask yourself. One, am I hungry? If I'm hungry, am I ignoring the word of God or am I feeding on the word of God? That's the key and operative question because neglect is the path to failure. All right, verse 6. Now the illustration, father to a son. Here it is. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to come back to it. Verse 6. So I'm going to tell my son a story. Son, first of all, put the word of God in in heavy dose. It'll protect you. It'll prevent failure. It'll guard you. And this is how it works. Temptation, that is, and the path to failure. Verse 6, for at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice. I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner. That's a reference to the immoral woman. And he takes the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, in the darkness. That's the time frame. Verse 10, and behold, a woman comes to meet him. This is the immoral woman. This is how it works. Dressed as a harlot, cunning of heart. She's boisterous, rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She's now in the streets, now in the squares, lurks by every corner. She seizes him. She kisses him and with a brazen face. She says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today, I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings with colored linens of Egypt. She's making her appeal. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses for the man. That's her husband. Is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Verse 22, this is the decision. This is sin conceiving. So he's drawn out the enticement, the lure, the deception comes, and he makes a decision. Verse 22, suddenly he follows her. 
as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. So he makes a decision. What's the net effect of that decision? Death. Now, therefore, because all of that's true, that's how it works. Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me. Head up, eyes open. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not exercise your will because that's how it works. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many are the victims she has cast down. Do you see that word many? You need to see that more likely than not. If David can, you can. If Solomon did, you could. For many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. This is the most vivid illustration in the Word of God that describes game film for temptation. This is what you need to study, master, and extract benefit from. What is the first ingredient? Neglect. What is the second ingredient? Ignorance. Look at verse 6. For at the window of my house, I looked. Who's the I? The wise father. The personification of wisdom in action. Verse 6 says, I looked out through my lattice. That's the covering of the, the window opening. I'm observing life. I looked, verse 7, and I saw. Now, I want to make a point out of this verse to say that good people who do bad things fail to look and learn. They don't learn lessons from life. They don't learn lessons from others. They don't learn it by observing it, they learn it by living it. And in this case, the living it is catastrophic. Good people who do bad things don't learn from others who have done bad things. They don't look out through the lattice of life and go, hmm, so that's what happens. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 24, because this is what wisdom does, and this is wisdom applied to Immorality, wisdom applied to purity. Wise people, listen, they learn lessons from others through life observations. We talk about the school of hard knocks. School of hard knocks is unnecessary if you're willing to look and learn. Verse 30, Proverbs 24, listen to wisdom talk. I passed by the field of the sluggard. I went by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall was broken down. Verse 32, when I saw, I reflected. I reflected upon it. I looked. And I received instruction. Verse 33, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want, your need, like an armed man. Wisdom says, I looked, I learned, 
I saw, I reflected, and I drew propositional wisdom conclusions. I didn't live it. I saw it. I saw somebody else's neglect. And I extrapolated, I extracted benefit from their failure. Now listen to me. There is an abundance of evidence to support an education that doesn't require your failure. There are an abundance of people that are willing, and I know this is true, to communicate to you. You can observe it and you can ask. There are common realities that you need to learn. You put yourself in certain situations at certain times, bad things happen. So, Bob, how did that happen? Bob's a made-up name. Bob, how did that happen? Well, we worked together. We did projects together. We went out to eat together. We got closer than we should have gotten. You know how many times I've heard that? Oh, I was on the internet. I I was just on Facebook and all of a sudden I'm chatting with somebody and I can really relate to them and they're just like me and they have the same kind of needs I have. And before you know it, something happens. You need to learn lessons from others that inform your choices to prevent catastrophic losses. You know, I wrecked my car back in the fall. Didn't I tell you that? Drove it off the road, Aliso Canyon. It's a rear engine car. And obviously I survived. I injured my wrist, but totaled the car. I was not driving aggressively. I have driven aggressively in days past. I might have even driven aggressively on the way out to Angeles Crest. But coming back, I was just putzing along. It was dark. And I lifted in a corner, lifted meaning the throttle. Okay, so I've got my foot in the throttle. I'm making a right-hand corner. It gets called decreasing radius. It's getting tighter. I'm going, ooh, this is tighter. I'll back off. Bad decision. Rear engine car, when you back off, lift in a corner, changes the weight. So the rear engine car, which is back on the rear, now lifts because I lift it. The traction in the rear goes away. Car, because I'm in a corner, starts to slide out. It happened so fast, I could not correct. Shot me off into the canyon, 150 feet down into the canyon. Bad day. I have a rule. My son was traveling with me. He was in the other vehicle. And we have a rule when you get to the stop sign, if your teammate doesn't show up, you go back. Obviously, I didn't show up at the stop sign. So he came back, as was his commitment. And by that time, I'd crawled out of the canyon, standing by the side of the road. He comes rolling up, happy to see his father, but wondering what happened to the car. (laughs) You couldn't even see it. It was, I left the lights on so you could find it. He said, what happened? I said, I don't really know what happened. This is what he said. Did you lift in the corner? I said, I actually did. He said, don't you know you don't lift in a corner? This is the truth. After he hugged and we expressed affection for safety and reunion, he took me home and made me watch six YouTube videos (laughs) of guys lifting my car in a corner. Do you know what happened to all six guys? What happened to mine? They just were on a racetrack, so the consequences were not so catastrophic. 
You know what I said to Parker? Sure would have been good to have seen these videos before I drove off the road. (laughs) Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that it's far better to learn from somebody else than it is to live the reality and learn the hard way. Wise people learn lessons from life. They learn lessons of what put Bob in harm's way. What choices he made that resulted in that failure. Here's a question you need to ask in a kind, instructive way. And I've never had anybody say, I'm not interested in telling you what happened to me. Hey, what happened? Because you remember, good people do bad things, rarely intend to. Every one of them would say, I never, I never thought this could happen to me. So, Bob, how did it happen? You extract benefit from what they've learned the hard way so you don't have to learn it the hard way. Do you understand that? All right. Number three. So here's the question you need to ask yourself. Am I ignoring or am I learning? Am I ignoring the things I should be learning from or am I actually looking and learning? Go back to Proverbs chapter 7 for number 3. Verse 7. So what did he see? Well, I saw, he says, the wise man who learns lessons from life. I looked, I saw among the naive. I discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. So let me ask you a question. What's the operative ingredient? the implied reality in this verse that promotes failure, falling to temptation, immoral action. What is the operative ingredient? Naivety. What is naivety? Naivety is the ability to be seduced, the ability to be misled. You're immature in a way that makes you gullible to what you shouldn't be gullible to. So when the salesman comes and promises the product does miraculous things, you don't have enough experience to go, oh, no, it doesn't. The Hebrew word pithe means to be open like a door. The operative ingredient is naivety, and at the heart of naivety is an openness. You haven't made decisions, moral decisions. You're just open. You haven't made personal resolutions. You're open-minded. You're open to the situation. The fellow is naive. Literally, he's called in my Bible, simple. And in Proverbs, that means he has no clear moral standards. Standards that are meant to guide his conduct. He's never made up his mind about the values he will live by. He's open to all forms of solution and solving his hunger problem. He's never said, I've closed my mind to that option. A wise person, on the other hand, has closed the door. The naive man is sitting on the fence. He's a situational ethicist. He waits to make his decisions until those decisions present themselves. He's seducible. He's morally seducible. He's morally immature. Listen to Daniel 1.8. Daniel made up his mind 
that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food. Now, let me tell you when he didn't make up his mind, when the food showed up and he was hungry. They, uh, Job 31.1, Job writes, I have made a covenant with my eyes that I will not gaze on a virgin. I've decided ahead of time. I've resolved and determined ahead of time that I'm not going to do certain things. It says here in verse 6, or 7 rather, he lacked sense. The Hebrew word there is the idea of a moral center, a, a compass. Leb, it's the core. He has no guidance system because he hasn't had a moral compass nailed down. He's seducible because he hasn't closed the door on certain decisions and situations. You need to, listen to me, you need to make up your mind ahead of time. You need to close the door in advance on certain situations and options. There are certain things you should never do. Rules that you ought to have. I brought a team of students from Liberty University back in the early 80s out to Los Angeles from Lynchburg, Virginia. We're, we're on a team bus. We got a Trailways bus, 35 college students, and Denny's our driver. And the captain of our basketball team, who was a friend of mine, was sitting right behind the driver with me. And we're in the middle of Arizona, in the middle of the night, making way for Los Angeles. And they're doing road construction, and there's these big orange barrels lining the road, moving the traffic to the left-hand lane. Nobody for miles, no cars to be seen. And Mark, the captain of the basketball team, says, Hey, Denny, what do you think would happen if we hit one of those barrels? Denny goes, We can't do that. That's illegal. I know, but nobody will know. What do you think will happen? Anybody want to guess? Next thing that happened was Denny hit his first barrel and it just bounced off into the desert like it was just exploded. And then he got addicted to it. So we were hitting barrel after barrel after barrel. You know what that is? That's naive. That's this word. That's waiting till you get to the moment you haven't resolution in your heart, convictions. You're going to cultivate. Let me tell you what you need to do if you're going to overcome temptation. You need rock-solid, non-negotiable moral convictions that define what you will do before you get to the decision point. I ride high-performance, or I did, ride high-performance motorcycles. They go fast. In the old state in which I lived, not so much traffic, Lots of pavement. If you see a law officer, the kind of motorcycle I would ride, no competition. No competition. So I told my son what I decided for myself. Parker, if we see a policeman and he puts those lights on, you immediately pull over. Because the temptation is, I can get away with this. Country roads, lots of real estate, no chance he catches me. You know what that is? Foolish. What's not foolish is deciding ahead of time, I'm not going to do this. So when I'm at the social event and somebody walks up and offers me a drink or a drug, I'm not deciding then. I've already decided. 
I've decided I'm not going to eat lunch or dinner with a wife not my own, unchaperoned, not happening. Nor am I going to meet in an office without a window. Nor am I going to take somebody home that's not my wife without a chaperone. I'm not waiting until the opportunity. Jerry Falwell said in a seminary chapel in my seminary, he said, guys, I don't care if it's pouring rain and she's broken down on the side of the road. You do not stop. You drive to town, you buy an umbrella, you drive back and you throw it out the window. (laughs) You know what? I've never forgotten that. And that's a long time ago. There are certain decisions you need to make. And you need to make them, listen to this, ahead of time. There are things I'll do and not do. I'm not going to wait until you invite me. I'm not going to wait until the Krispy Kremes are offered to me. I'm going to decide ahead of time what I will or I won't do. Because life is a buffet of options that are unhealthy spiritually. And if you don't make decisions ahead of time, you will make the wrong decisions at the time. I saw among the naive, I discerned among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Let me do this last one, and I know we're at the end, and sojourners will be coming through and making noise, but I'm going to read verse 8. Here's the last thing I want to plant in your heart today. Passing through the street near her corner, he takes the way to her house. What's the operative ingredient to the failure that's imminent? He's flirting with fire. Because certain things happen in certain places. Turn over to chapter 5, verse 8. Listen to what it says there. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. If I'm going to end this installment today on protecting you by informing you of the path temptation takes... The question I want to ask is, are you flirting with fire? Are you flirting or avoiding? Are you in harm's way? Is there somebody in your world that you're too close to, that you've been chatting too often with, friends that have collected in your life that are not purveyors of good choices, but bad choices? Are you putting yourself in harm's way? Are you flirting? You know what the operative word here is? Foolishness. Go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Try to be holy. Foolish. I used to have people in my church going, we're going to Mardi Gras. What? Must be something that Mardi Gras I don't know about that Christians ought to see and do. Because the majority of the things that happen at Mardi Gras are not healthy spiritually. Things that you will see. Some people go, hey, hey, I I went to this movie. Really? Why would you go to that movie? The trailer alone informs you that what is housed in that medium is not holy promoting. It's unholy promoting. Are you tracking with me? That music you listen to, listen, I'm not a legalist. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm a Christian who wants to be a Christian. And I don't want to pay the price for failure. 
So there's certain things you don't do because you decide ahead of time that those places are flirting with fire. There's places that I'm not going. And my friends can roll their eyes and other people go, you kidding me? And I go, yeah, not interested. You know why? It is not worth the risk. Can you say amen? All right. I preached at you today, didn't I? This is a heart to say. And listen, if you fumble the ball, you know what I'm saying is true. And the beauty of the gospel is restoration and healing. Remember, we all fall down somewhere, somehow, but we we have recovery in the gospel. But the goal is to avoid failure, not to recover from it. Prevention is an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, which is why you pray every day, lead me not into temptation. Because temptation puts me in harm's way. And if I get into temptation, deliver me from evil. You know what the word deliver is? Rescue me. That's a daily prayer. Because temptation is a daily struggle. Amen? You guys are quiet today. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. And I, I know that, Lord, this is more relevant than... Lord, any of us are inclined to admit because they're not a one of us that don't struggle with invitations to satisfy legitimate longings in illegitimate ways. And Lord, it begins with a hunger in our heart that we need to satisfy legitimately. We need to have our head up and our eyes open. We need to make decisions ahead of time and we need to stay out of places far from her. Lord, for many Christians, it seems we want to exercise our liberty to get close to failure. Lord, we need to be far from it. So, Lord, help us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day.